Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Many years ago, I was watching at a friend's house. They had a bonus room, and then there was downstairs as well. And we were watching the BSU football game against Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl. Spoiler alert, we won, in case you didn't know that. Sorry. So in that game, though, if you remember, it was kind of a back-and-forth game. And one of the guys that was watching the game with us was he had moved here um, from late in his life from California, and he wasn't really a BSU fan, but he, you know, he bought the BSU gear and there was one team specifically when we played them, because that's where he went to college, he would definitely root for them. But outside of that, he seemed like a BSU fan. But during that game, if you remember, it was like kind of a back and forth for quite some time. And what ended up happening is he would be like, when we were doing well, he'd be like high five and be like, yeah, this is awesome, this is great. And then the instant we weren't doing well, I'd be like, I just, I knew they didn't want it. Like this other team's bad. And he just kept flopping back and forth and would start rooting for Oklahoma. So much so that we finally like, literally like kicked him out of the room. Like you cannot watch it with us. You have to watch it downstairs now because we can't handle it. He was just driving us all nuts. But it was like, we, you couldn't tell if he really wanted BSU win or not, or if he was just trying to just drive us all nuts. Well, because of the way that the system was set up at the house, the downstairs TV had a, there was a delay. So there's a five seconds ahead downstairs versus upstairs. So if you remember the ending, we have no idea, right? He comes screaming and we're like, what happened? What happened? And then it happens like, yay. And he comes up, he's like, I told you the whole time. And I was so mad. I picked him up. I was like, you did not. And he put his knees forward and threw his knee through the wall of my friend's house. We had to fix that later. That has nothing to do with the story. But the point is, is that that he flipped and flopped over and over and over again. And, and football is a silly thing, and it doesn't really matter in the context of the kingdom of God. But at the same point, it's one of those situations where you see uh, there are those kind of those bandwagon fans, those people that will live for a team for a season, but then move on to somewhere else. Or the instant that the team doesn't give them what they perceive that they want, they, they, they reject them and move on. And the, the same is, is somewhat unfortunately true to us as followers of Jesus. Very often, and I don't want to make light of the idea of flipping and flopping, but very often, many of us, we, we live as though we align ourselves to the kingdom of God, but then we make choices sometimes that are contrary to that, and we follow other aspects of that. And the, 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 the letter to the church in Corinth was a, a fantastic letter that was dealing with a number of issues inside the early Christians that were in this church. And they, they were having all sorts of struggles and battles, and one of the conversations that has been brought up, the, the Holy Spirit in, inspired um, by God through the Apostle Paul has brought up this idea of food offered to idols. In chapter 8 is where this began. And this, this battle that was happening of whether or not they, these stronger Christians were eating meat that was bought in the, the market but had been sacrificed to idols. And can we eat it or can we not? What's the, what's the real role of that? And that started at the beginning of chapter 8. And then he's kind of worked his way through a, a number of conversations, even next week or last week, talking about the different things that we are not to be. And this whole theme over the last, I don't know, six, seven chapters of, of, of Corinthians has been this idea that God's kingdom is here. And there's a way today, there are present day implications for us to operate inside of God's kingdom, even though he hasn't brought it to full fruition yet. And so that's where we're going we're gonna to pick up today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me into 1 Corinthians 10 verses 14 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you. You're welcome to look on your electronic device. Just wait on your fantasy projections, please. So chapter 10, verses 14 is where we are. Uh, just before this, in verse 13, again, we, 
the, the last week, he kind of went through all the lists of stuff that he spent a lot of time extensively in chapter five and six talking about. And he kind of talked about how these are not true and these are not true and these are not true. And then he comes down to verse 13. So we'll read that and then we'll jump into verse 14. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you become or let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I don't have time to talk about all of that. I would encourage you to go listen to the message from two weeks ago on that. But he comes into verse 14 with a therefore. So this therefore is, is there because of everything before it. He says, therefore, my beloved. This is the second time and the only, only one of two times that he uses that language to the, to the believers in, Corinthian, in Corinth. And this is important for us. Because if you remember the rest of the letter, it's not exactly lighthearted material. It's very difficult hard corrections. There's a lot of issues in the church. There were questions that were sent to him while he's pastoring the church in Ephesus and it's coming back to him and saying, look, there's issues in the church that were divided. All these struggles are happening. There's sexual immorality and there's idolatry. There's all sorts of difficult things happening. So it's a really hard letter, but he comes out of the gate with this, with this, with this verse. He says, therefore, my beloved. He, he, he literally comes to these Corinthian believers and says, look, I care deeply about you. I'm not just sharing this hard things. Yes, I mean, I, I picture him almost frustrated at times at the ways with the, which the Corinthians were operating outside of the context of God's kingdom. But I picture, like, this is a genuine, like, no, but I love you. This is a plea. This is a very big plea. Therefore, my beloved. Therefore, my, my brothers and sisters. Therefore, the church. This is a, a plea, a genuine plea from someone that cares deeply about these people. And he comes, comes and says the same thing he said back in chapter five. He says, flee from idolatry. Back in five, I gave the analogy of, of a gazelle out in the, in, the, in the African desert, just kind of minding its own business, and all of a sudden a cheetah starts coming up on it, right? And, and the idea of the way that most of us think of flea, we think of like, oh no, there's a cheetah, and we start walking away, right? The gazelle does not do that. And I, I made the joke and said a lot of us would, would try to be like the gazelle when it comes to sin and, and idolatry and these things, and we say, well, you know what? Like, let's, like, hang on, cheetah, before you eat me, let's have a cup of tea, let's talk about this. And we try, to, we try to train these sins and, and hold them in close proximity as if we can control them. And yet the word he uses here is flee, just in case you're running. That's like, that's like all you need to do is run, outrun the person next to you when you're chased by a bear. That's the kind of flee that this language is, right? Like, I just need to beat you so that I don't get eaten, right? Like, it's a throw that, like, you're untying the shoes or tying the shoes up, getting ready. It's not something we take lightly. When he says flee idolatry, he's saying, look, run from it. And it comes right after he said, look, the Lord will give you a way to escape. Take the off-ramp. Don't hesitate. Don't even use your blinker if you have to. Just get out of there. Go. Get away. Flee. Run from idolatry. And it's interesting that he starts this text with that. And then now he goes down and gives a multiple different reasons as why idolatry is an issue. I think it's because he recognizes that God shows us, and we see in this text, how important it is for us to just have the posture of wanting to run from idolatry. I can give you a number of reasons why not to do it, but at the end of the day, our heart has to be settled on the fact that like, when it comes to idolatry, we'll run from it. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna play with it. We're not gonna pretend that it's okay. We're going to run from it. And I know many of you are going, man, I don't really pay attention to meat when I buy it if it's sacrificed to idols. I spend more time looking at non-GMO or, or grass-fed or that's kind, of the, that's kind of the meat stuff I look for, right? I know that most of us aren't dealing with the idea of food sacrificed to idols, but every single one of us deals with idolatry in our lives. Idolatry is, isn't just golden calves. It's anything that you have worship in place of God, meaning that you can only, things that you can only find meaning in or, or find your worth in, power, independence, approval, materialism. 
It's the thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It's the very thing. Idolatry is the very thing in the first 12 verses of this chapter. It's the very thing that kept the Israelites out of the promised land. Even though they partook of the the unleavened bread and the feast that they gave him, it still kept them out of it. It says it like this in Romans 1.25. It says, they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature. Anything that is created rather than the creator is a lie if you're worshiping it. Anything, your kids, your marriage, your church, anything that takes the place of God is an idol. Money, your 401k, anything that you were relying on in place of God is an idol. Idolatry is a huge, huge issue, not only in the church in Corinth, but in in today's church. If you are more concerned about what people think about you than resting in your identity as a child of God, your reputation is an idol. If all of a sudden financial strain hits you, and yes, it's hard, but you start questioning the goodness of God, well, money is an idol. These things become idols. Our our marriages become idols. Our children become little idols, and all of those things make crummy gods not worthy of worship. We can't worship idols. Idolatry is a big issue. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, when the love of God is shed abroad in the heart, the idols will soon depart and the love of sin will take its flight. Colossians 3, 5 through 6 says, essentially kind of gives us the answer what it says. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness means desiring something other than God. Idolatry doesn't only destroy our relationship with God, it destroys our relationship with one another. Idolatry is a big issue. Job, at the end of, kind of, the end of Job, he's, he has this, this long kind of last statement in ver- um, chapter 31 through 24 through 28. He says this, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I had rejoiced about all I had, that's all he's saying there, right? If I looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving its splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed, meaning if I look at the creation, how many of us have looked at God's creation and worshiped creation as opposed to the creator that created it? It says, or the moon rising and been t- secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity. This would be a sin to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. Look, he's saying, look, everything does not belong or everything belongs in its right place, nothing belongs above God. Nothing belongs in place of God. Idolatry is a big thing. It's an issue. It's a struggle. And he says at the very beginning, run. Don't just stand around and wait and see what happens. Run from it. Flee it. So right now, that means that some of you need to get out of your seat and run. Not out of here. I mean, that would be a little awkward if you did. But that means in your life, you need to stop playing with fire, keeping it close, inviting the cheetah in for tea before it eats you. You need to run. You need to flee whatever it is that would take place of God. Your security, your reputation, your identity, whatever it is, flee. And he starts there. So this is flee. And then now he gives us the reason why it's so important for us to understand that we can't flip and flop. We can't have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot out. It doesn't make sense. They're not congruent. They're not compatible. 
After he starts with this, he's like, flee. And then he goes on in verse, so we got a whopping few words into this. Okay, let's keep going. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, some scholars would think that he's being sarcastic because he has used that in this text. I think because, uh, because of the my beloved right before, this is not a sarcastic statement. This is him pleading like, look, you guys, you know this. You have the spirit of God. You should understand the issues with this. He spent a lot of time showing them, look at what happened to the Israelites. They gave themselves to idolatry and sexual immorality and all those things, and they weren't, they weren't able to, to walk into the promised land. And they had been experiencing the blessings that you have been experiencing from God doesn't mean that just because the blessings are there that you are in. You have to submit yourselves to God. He's saying, pay attention. I care about you. You are sensible people. And then he goes on. says, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Just so you guys can know, in a second, we're going to take communion at the end of the service, but I'm going to talk about this a little bit here. We're going to kind of work through this text, and then we'll come back to it. But he brings up this idea of the cup, which is blessing, and they bless it. Now, that language is tricky because today, kind of this idea that seeped into the church that we need to bless food before we eat it, and we think that we're actually asking God to bless the food as if the, bad is, the food is bad. That's not what they use. That's not the context. He's saying we want to bless God for providing the food. That's the way which we are to pray. That's the way that they're doing. That was, that was a common prayer that would come. Bless the Lord, our God is one. Like, this a blessing. Bless him. Give him the glory. Thank him for what he's given. And so they're not saying we bless food in this way, like we have blessed this cup and therefore it's blessing. No, it's that we've thanked God for this cup of blessing. Now, in this text, there's a, there's a number of ways with which we have to understand the cup of blessing. Basically, the cup of blessing is the covenant participation. We see that it's like a metaphor for betrothal contract that we see in 2 Corinthians. Or maybe the way to say it is this is, this is sharing the cup represents the participation in the redemption achieved in this context. So when he says we take the cup, he's speaking about the cup of communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, however you, you use it. And so he's saying, this is the cup that's a, ble- it's a blessing. When we, we take this, we're a participant in it. We're a participant in it, just like we're a participant in the body, the, bre- the bread. And what he's saying, he's saying, look, you're aligning yourselves to this. You are giving yourselves to this. So when you take, when you drink of the cup of blessing, you are saying that I am partaking in the spilling of Jesus' blood, and therefore I'm recognizing that he has spilled his blood for me. There's life in blood. That's what Leviticus teaches He's given his life so that I can have life by believing and submitting my life to him as Lord and Savior. When you, when you drink the cup, it's not just remembering what he's done. It's, it's acknowledging that you agree that what he's done was necessary for you to be right before God. You agree with the sense that you've partaken in it. Now, some religions have taken it to mean that when you drink the little wine or the, or the, or the grape juice, whichever context the church uses, that you're actually drinking the physical blood of Jesus. That's, that's, a, that's a very, um, that's a, a departure from the scripture and how it's done. It's not always meaning here. It's, it's participating in the sense of we align ourselves, similar to baptism, you align yourself to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When you go in the water and come out, you go in the tomb and come out with Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Now, why is this important? Because again, in the context of what's happening in this letter, the Corinthian believers were struggling with the idea of, can I eat this meat that's sacrificed to idols? And he already established early in eight, said, look, 
they're nothing. These idols are nothing, right? They're not gods. There's only one God. You're fine. It's totally great. The meat doesn't really matter. He's actually going to go back into this after this text next week we're going to talk about it, or he's going to go back into how come we're not supposed to partake in it. It's this whole idea of because we have the freedoms doesn't mean we still do it. What does it look for us to remove freedoms from ourselves for the sake of the gospel in the life of other people? And so this has been going back and forth, but he's saying, first, you have to understand, here's what's happening. When you eat of that bread, when you drink of that juice, you are participating as a fellowship. This is where we see the word fellowship come together. We see this idea of gathering the church together. It happens together in one body, one together. You're doing this as a body of believers. You can't flop. You can't choose another team to start rooting for in the middle of the game. This aligns you to God. This is what he's talking about. You're you're saying this. And in this, he uses the idea of this cup of blessing. Now, we don't have time to go there, but I would encourage you to go back to read Exodus 6. If you've spent any time in the church, you've heard the idea of the Israelites being enslaved by Egypt and being freed. If you haven't, the cliff notes, go watch Prince of Egypt. Okay, that'll be easier. Um, Not exact, sorry. So read Exodus 6. The Israelites were enslaved by Egypt. And because of their slavery, they pleaded, and Moses is the one that leads them out of it. And there's this, this beautiful, long progression of how God does it through, through the work with Moses and Aaron and, and the whole community. It's just, it's incredible. And what happened is when they left, they had to leave in haste. And so because they left in haste, all these different aspects took place. And then God told them to celebrate annually this Passover meal. And so what would happen is every year, all of the Jews, if they could, they'd work their way to Jerusalem. If they couldn't, they would stay home. But they would, they would celebrate for sometimes eight days, nine days, this Passover meal, this Paschal meal, this, what we call today Eucharist or, or the Lord's Supper. They would, they would celebrate this meal. And it, would have, it had all very specific aspects to it. And in every single meal, there, was this, there were specific cups of watered-down wine that was meant to be in place to remind them of different things. There was the cup of sanctification, meaning that, that God would bring us out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. We see in Philippians 1, 6, the same promise, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We see it for every promise that comes out of Exodus, we see a New Testament scripture speaking in the context of the new covenant, which comes to Jesus, which we'll talk at the end of this service about. The second cup was the cup of deliverance. It based on God's statement, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Psalms 34, 17 says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. This third cup, now this is one where some scholars believe this is the cup he's talking about, the cup of blessing, because it was named the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing as the third cup in the Passover meal. And this one was, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm or Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And the fourth cup would be the cup of restoration. It was based on the the promise to make my people, I will be your God. We see that in Revelations that he will not partake of this meal again until his kingdom comes to fruition. And so these cups are in place, and this is what's, what's happening. So some say it's the cup of blessing. Some say it's the last cup. I don't necessarily think it matters in the context of what he's doing. I don't think that's, this is where you could really grab that answer from here. But what he's doing is he's reminding them of the Passover meal, which is really important because he spent his whole time reminding them of the Israelites and the mistakes they made and said, don't, don't repeat history. Our forefathers did this. Don't you do this. Don't lose sight of what, what, what God has shown us as he's re- preserved for us through the scriptures. Don't, don't do what's already been done over and over again. It's pointless. And so then he goes on and says, look, there's something deeper happening here that we have to recognize in communion. See, communion isn't just 
us aligning to the Israelites' freedom. When we take communion today, when we take a part of Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, when we do that today, we're not proclaiming the freedom that was brought to us out of Egypt. We're proclaiming the freedom that's brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming the goodness of the freedom that we have from sin and slavery and bondage. We're proclaiming him and what he's done. And so he's, he's aligning them to this. Now he's saying, why is this important? Again, uh, participation means that you're sharing in or benefiting from what happened. So when he said that the Israelites shared in the altar, it wasn't that the Israelites went into the altar room. They weren't welcomed in there. That was the priests that were in there. That they, but the meat and the process, they, they had participated in the effects of the altar. It's the same thing with us in communion. When you participate in what Jesus' blood being spilled for you and what it means, you, you, you align yourselves to it. When you take of the bread, the bread is to signify the incarnation, his life, his humanness. When you eat of this, you're, you're acknowledging that he is your God. He was human and he's your God. You're, you're aligning yourself to it. Verse 19, he goes on and says this. He says, why do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. No, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So he, he says here, this is important because again, right before he had just established, like, look, you're right, because they were saying the idols aren't anything. They aren't anything. They're just nothing. They're, they're, they're doing a, a weird ceremony in a temple where there is no real God. There is no real deity there. There's no God in this way. And he's saying, yeah, that's right. But now he's establishing something that we teased out when we talked about originally, is that, that there are no neutral spirits in this world. You're either of God or of Satan. You're either of good or evil. He's saying there are some, some practices that even though it's to a golden calf, that golden calf in and of itself holds no real value. It's just a piece of gold. It's nothing. But what is around it can be spiritual bondage. Demons can use the worship of other things. Demons can use your idolatry towards money. The enemy can use idolatry in your life. He can, he can make it this way. And so he's saying, look, be aware. Yeah, you're right. The idols mean nothing. There are no real gods. You're good. Everything's great. It makes sense. Be aware of that. But be conscious. Be aware. There are spiritual elements going on that we are not aware of. We are not able to see. And he's saying, when you participate in these pagan ritualistics, you're actually, you're actually participating in the same way that the Israelites participated in the altar sacrifices or the way that you participate in the Lord's Supper. And so see what he's saying? He's saying when you participate in this, it's not that you're just doing it and it's happening around you. It's that you're aligning yourself to the truth of saying that this is what I believe and this is what matters. And so he's saying, whoa, 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 you cannot, you cannot partake. You cannot flip and flop in that way. You can't be a part of God's kingdom and then be a part of demons and worship there. They're incompatible. They, we can't, they do not belong together. You can't do it this way. The Corinthians failed to discern right along is that to say an idol is not a god does not mean that it does not represent supernatural powers. Just because it's not a god. Money isn't a god, but many of us treat it like one. And the enemy can use that to enslave us. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, these, these seeming neutral practices, these amoral things that are happening, there's more that could be going on, and you need to be aware of that. So that's the other reason why, to flee idolatry. And in verse 21, he says, he says it, just in case he was like, this is what I want you to do, he gets a little bit more direct in verse 21. He says, you cannot, just in case there's any confusion, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He's not saying, well, it might work for some time, He's saying, no, you, you cannot do that. 
It's not possible for you to partake in both ones. It's not possible for you to be a participant in this kingdom and a participant in this kingdom. You are either going to serve one or hate the other. You're either going to love one or hate the other. Jesus taught that in the Gospels. You cannot do it. You can't sit in the middle. You can't flip and flop back and forth. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't make sense that way. And then he's just to give us a little bit more motivation to flee idolatry. He says, in verse 21, he says, you cannot partake of the tables of the Lord and the table of demons. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, these are, these are rhetorical questions, okay? This is one of those questions like, hmm, shall we do this? Like, no, this is like, Really, you're going, to, you're going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now, most of the time, we take the context of jealousy in such a negative way. This is actually a very positive thing. God is jealous for us, and God is good. And so his jealousy is for us. So when we give of ourselves to demons, he's like, oh, no, no, you're mine. I bought you. I paid for you with a price. You are mine. Nothing can take you from me. And so he's jealous for our worship. Anytime we give worship or, or our eyes get taken off the prize and we start looking at money or relationships or status or our job front. He's like, no, 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 he's jealous. He's like, I want you back. You belong with me. And here's the best part about God being jealous. God knows what's best for us. So he knows that by us keeping our mind and our eyes and our, and our, and our worship fixed on him, we're actually doing what he created us to do. We're gonna, we're gonna rest in pure joy. We're gonna have undefiled wisdom from above. That's why he is jealous. He says, are, we, are you stronger than him? I, I kind of picture this question like when I talk to my three-year-old son who's just convinced that one day he's gonna be able to hit me and knock me over, and I'm sure it will happen, but it is just not right now, right? Like there's no way. He punches me as hard as he can. It's like, yeah, that's nothing, buddy. Unless I'm not paying attention. That's a little bit more painful, but either way. I kind of picture this question like that. Many of us view that we're stronger than God. No one would ever say that. No one would go, you know what? Look in the mirror and be like, wow, look at me. I'm probably stronger than God. No one ever thinks that, but we operate daily in our life like that. We believe that we are more capable to do the things that God says, no, 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 I'm supposed to do that through you. We believe that somehow we can, we can walk this fine line of idolatry. It's not really idolatry. We just like it a lot. I don't really idolize this relationship. I'm just really close with her. And we, we think for some reason then because of that idolatry, because of that situation, we think, oh, you know what? I can just stand in here as if we're stronger than the Lord. And the Lord's saying, wait, well, hold on a second. If you are his and he's jealous for you, do you really think you can keep yourself from him? If you're in a position of disobedience as his child, do you think he's not going to discipline to bring you back? You're saying, do you really want to provoke him? Do you, do you really think you're stronger than him? And that's the last motivation. It's like, look, not only does it not make sense or incompatible, you're, you're worshiping demons or you're worshiping God. It doesn't make sense to provoke God to jealousy. It's not who we are. It's not a true part of kingdom. But really, if you're a partaker, if you're a participant in the Lord's Supper, then you're literally saying, I align. I, I want the benefits of what it means to experience the goodness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. When we participate in Jesus Christ's spilling of his blood and his body being broken for us and, and his body being torn apart for us and, and us experiencing the, the goodness that comes from there, we're saying that I want to not only participate in his death, but I want to participate in every spiritual blessing being mine now because of it. I want to participate in the fact that I'm redeemed and righteous. I'm clothed in righteousness because we're participating in it. So it doesn't make sense. To go back to the context of the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. See, in the Old Testament, Israel looked back to the Exodus through the Passover meal. And then in the New Testament, New Israel or us, we look back to the cross through our Passover meal. 
We, we look back to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ through Lord's Supper. This idea of the, the cup, which is blessing, is, is so big and so profound. So let's just, let me just go there for a second, and then we'll take communion together. And hopefully what comes out of this as you partake, as you participate in the Lord's Supper, you will watch idolatry just die in you. You'll see things that you maybe held higher and you'll realize just how low they are and how little of a place they deserve in your heart. In the Old Testament, the, the Passover was, was almost 1,500 years of tradition by the time Jesus came. Every year they'd do it. Some 250,000 lambs were probably slaughtered in Jesus' day. That's a big, that's a bunch of blood, right? And they would, they would do this, this, it was this deep ingrained ritualistic dinner that they would celebrate every single year. And they would, they would feast of unleavened bread because there was no leaven when they left in haste. And they would, they would eat of bitter herbs because there was no good herbs out in the wilderness. And they had this, this whole idea of what it meant. And the, and the idea of the blood on the doorpost and, the, and the, the angel passing over them is this idea that lamb is the sacrifice so they would go through this ritual dinner and it had these different cups in place and everything made sense and they, they drank of this cup at this time and they drank of this cup at this time. And they did all of those things. But when we see our Lord's Supper put in place, not just the Passover for Egypt and the Israelites, when Jesus is in that upper room, he does something so profound. See, he, he, he calls an audible at a time that would have made complete nonsense to do so. You know, you, you guys get in a rhythm, right? You come here on a Sunday, we sing some songs, someone talks at you for a while, maybe too long sometimes, right? And then we sing some more songs, and we talk about offering, we kind of move, and then every now and then we throw in one of those family services, and everyone's like, oh, man, like, that was just not what I was expecting, right? Like, totally different. That's what happens in the upper room with Jesus. So he's reclining at the table with them, and he makes this, he takes all of this this, this normal thing, and he works through the cups, and he breaks the bread, and he does all those things, and then in Matthew 26, we see this, Jesus takes the bread and after blessing it, again, not blessing that it would nourish him, but blessing it, like thanking God for it. He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The ushers are passing communion right now. We're gonna actually take it together instead of doing it at the back of the room. What Jesus does here is he, he takes the normal meal and he picks up the, the cup at the end and he, he, he calls an audible and goes to the fifth cup, the cup of wrath. And he says, wait, hang on a second. Now, this, this cup that you're drinking, this cup isn't the cup that they were expecting him to drink at this moment. He says, this is, this is the cup that, that is, is my blood of the new covenant. This is where it's at. And now, for us, we're like, okay, that's neat. And we see it as the first time to them. This is an audible to the Passover meal. What cup is he talking about? Well, if you look back at Jesus' teachings throughout Scripture, he always speaks of this cup. Remember when the disciples want to come with him and he says, my cup you cannot bear. We get the clearest picture of it in, in Matthew 26, 38 through 39, just a little bit further. He says, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here. Just pause for a second. I had a, a brilliant mentor once tell me, when you're studying Scripture, any time you see the Lord proclaim any kind of emotions, pay a lot of attention. Because see, most of us, we forget that Jesus is human as well as God. And here is Jesus, fully man, fully God, deeply sorrowful. Guys, this is like ugly crying sorrowful. This is not just like, oh, I'm a little sad about what's going to come, but don't worry, I'm Jesus, and so I can handle it. He is deeply sorrowful. He says, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, 
If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Every time I read this text, I pause on that me. Too often when I just read right past it. The reason why I pause is because Luke 22 tells us that his, his sweat became blood. That's how much he's grieving. I don't know if you've ever experienced that kind of stress. I haven't. Our Lord, Jesus, deeply sorrowful, to the point where his sweat is becoming blood. And he asks, Lord, if, there is, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And there's a, a full sermon just in that last sentence. But don't miss the point. He's wrestling. He is wrestling with what he's about to face. And most of us would go to, well, we've seen passion. I don't know what he's going to face. It's pretty brutal and gruesome, and that's what it is. But if, if, he's, if he's grieved to the point of sweaty forehead or blood, sweat, and forehead because he's about to be beaten, then that means some of his martyrs, some of his followers after did a better job than him. So it can't mean the physical beating, although I'm sure he wasn't looking forward to that to be just maimed and marred by people he created in their mother's womb. Like, think about that for a second. But no, he says, he says it very clearly. He says, let this what? This cup. What's the cup he's talking about? It's the cup of God's divine wrath. This is what he's saying. There's another way. Let this cup pass from me. The very cup that just a few verses earlier stood up before his disciples and said, this is the blood, my blood of the new covenant, my blood. It, it always baffles me, and obviously we have it in this context, but how did the disciples miss it? <laughs> he says it right in front of them. He's like, hey, this is the new covenant. I'm my blood. Like, there's no confusion to them. That means death, because life is in the blood, and that means his death, and it's a new covenant, which is a covenant language was common to them. He says, this is my covenant. It's in reference to the divine judgment. This is the cup of God's wrath. All of God's hatred towards sin stored up since the beginning of the world is about to be poured out on him instead of us. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath. His father, whom he had never been separated from, he now felt it all. He had never sinned. He had never felt the guilt of sin. But now he gets to experience the guilt of all of yours and my sins together. I heard a pastor once say, he said, you picture a, 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 a dam that's like 10 miles wide and 10 miles high and just goes on forever. And at the cross, it breaks, and Jesus just keeps getting his cup filled and has to keep drinking until every last drop is gone for my sin, sins I haven't even done yet, for your sin, for the entirety of the world. He drinks every last drop. Some of you bring big gulps. Some of you bring little teacups. doesn't matter. He drinks every single last drop of every single sin that every single one of his children do. In one instant, he takes the cup of wrath. So when he puts up the cup, some scholars would say that the cup of blessing would be the fact that he's the one that drinks. The blessing is him drinking the cup of wrath. So that's why they disagree about which cup it is. But either way, the, the, the point is made super clear. I don't think you need to get there on that idea which cup it is in this text alone. The point is made super clear. You can't partake in that cup and give yourself to idolatry outside of it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't at all make sense. A revised Passover meal is the central act of Christian worship. This is what, we, this is what we're about. We needed this revised Passover meal. Jesus taking the guilt, the shame, the, the pain, the hurt, the abandonment, all so we could have a path of eternal life. He does it all. No one misunderstood who freed them from Israel. The Egyptians knew it was God. It's pretty obvious by a cloud at night and fire during the day. Like, you couldn't miss it. Just like 
we shouldn't miss the fact that there's no way you and I can be right before God except through Jesus Christ. It should be common and, and make perfect sense to all of us. And so when we drink of communion, when we take Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, we are participating in that. We're saying that literally Jesus, we walk up to Jesus on the cross and say, hey, buddy, here's my cup. You drink it. We acknowledge that he needs to drink it so that we can be right before God. We don't hold back. No, you really shouldn't. No, there's no like false humility or even great humility in this situation. You have to give your cup to him to experience eternal life with God. So you give your cup and you acknowledge that there's no other way. It has to happen. Guys, when we partake of this little teeny bit of juice, it proclaims something so much more profound than just don't forget. It's, it's, a, it's a way for us to participate in what Jesus has done. And when we participate in what happened on the cross, we get to participate in the fact that he's resurrected and not in the tomb anymore. And that's great news. That means we get to participate in every spiritual blessing. That means that we are co-heirs with him to an eternity that is amazing. That means that every bit of joy that we experience on this earth pales in comparison to what we will experience in his kingdom when it comes to full fruition. It means that there's nothing that this earth could do to bring any kind of worship or value above God. Everything, our spouses, our kids, our money, every single thing is so far from distant from God because only God deserves our worship. That's what it means for us. So this is what you either align with or you don't. In a second here, we're gonna take communion. Before doing so, I wanna just acknowledge a couple things. Chapter 11, we'll talk about communion again because it goes into extensive different details of this. Communion is meant to be a, a, a proclamation, a participation for those that are in Christ. So if you're here today and you took a cup, you're like, uh-oh, I'm not a believer, then just don't partake of this with us. You can drink it after, it's not gonna matter. But, but you're, you're not supposed to participate in this because that would be the flip-flop thing. That would be the say, hey, I'm, I'm a part of the world, but I wanna be a part of the kingdom. Now, if you're here today and you're a part of the world and you wanna be a part of the kingdom, praise God, proclaim him as Lord and Savior, submit your life to him and drink and enjoy the freedom that comes and the hope that comes through Jesus alone. You're here today and you're a follower of Jesus and you know in your heart, you know, you know, you know that you like something. I'm gonna use the quote to air quotations because those work, right? You like something more than you should and if someone else were really let into that, if Jesus was sitting in front of you, you'd realize that this like is actually an idol. And then repent of that. Confess that. Here's, here's the brilliant part. It's not like Jesus stops drinking of our cup of sin. He drank every last drop of not just what we did before we met him, but what we do after we meet him. So it's not like he's like, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm a little full. Can't take any more in right now. No, he, he drinks all of it. So repent. Confess that and repent and say, God, I want to be, be whole with you. Forgive me for worshiping anything but you. Let him, let him rip those idols from your hands. Because I, I promise you this, you'll, you'll understand, like I have had to learn over and over and over again, that worship of anything else always falls completely short. Worship of God is so satisfying and fulfilling. So if you're here today and you need to repent, then do so. If you're here today and you realize, uh, the scriptures talk about this more in chapter 11, but if you realize you have um, something against your brother or sister in Christ, one of the biggest issues is the divisiveness in the church. The word koinonia, the Greek word for, for church together, shows up like five times in this text. This is meant to be done together. So as the body of believers, so if you're here as a believer and you have something against another believer, you are being divisive. You must first be reconciled and, and then partake in this. And it's like, oh, well, I just don't like them that much. Like, no, like, you're supposed to celebrate the differences in each other. We're one. Look, this is who you're going to be worshiping God with for an eternity. You might as well get to like each other now. That's what you're supposed to do. So we're going to take a minute, and then I will lead us in communion, and the band will come up, and we'll continue to worship with our voices in that way.
Um, but we're going to take a minute to just be silent. I would encourage you to ask the Lord to reveal anything into your heart that needs to be revealed. Uh, maybe you know what needs to be revealed, and you need to stand up and go text someone right now or make a call. You're welcome to do that. Um, if you're here today and you're like, again, you don't know what you believe, uh, maybe this is the time that you can just um, grab a Bible around you or open a Bible app and read Romans 10, 9, and just pray that prayer over yourself. Confess, acknowledge that he is Lord. Give yourself to him. And you hear just how much Jesus did take our place so that we could be in a right standing with God. It, it makes it a little bit more difficult to come at this flippantly, I hope. It makes it a little less of a um, ritual and more of a sacrament in a, in a beautiful way. When you realize just how much Jesus took for you to be in a right standing with God, when you realize just what he went through so that we could experience everlasting life and hope and joy, it makes this a, um, a bigger thing, and this is why I think this text pushes on us to not make light of idolatry, to not give ourselves to anything else because we are, we are spoken for. We were bought with just the heaviest of prices through Jesus' life. It was not a simple, small little payoff. It was something that we couldn't afford to pay for. and He did it over and over again for us. And so as Jesus was standing amongst his disciples, he, he took the bread and he blessed it. And, and again, the, the bread represents his, his incarnation, his humanness. It's, it's, it's distributed, not broken, because John, John tells us that, that not a bone in his body was broken. But it's his humanness. It's his distribution of his body. It's his distribution of his life. It's us aligning to his life, saying, God, we, we want to walk with you so that we can die with you and be raised with you and walk with you in the newness and wholeness of life. So he took the bread and he broke it and he blessed it and said, eat this. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Then the part that the audible he called, he takes the cup that we deserve to drink on our own and instead says, this is, this is my blood. This is the new covenant that I'm giving you. This is, this is me dying so that you can live. He says, every time you drink this, you do this in remembrance of me. But remember, it's not just that we don't forget what he's done in our lives or, or, or look to what he's going to do, but it's that we align, we participate with him today. There are present-day implications to us aligning this way, and that means that there can be no other idol in our life. And so when you drink of this, you drink, you proclaim that not only is it good that Jesus died, but it's good that he is your Lord and Savior. It's good that you are in a right standing with him. And you proclaim the goodness of him through the life that we can receive because of his life that was spilled for us. So he drinks it, says, this is the blood of my new covenant. Drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. Father, in a room this size, it wouldn't shock me if we couldn't fit the false idols in here that belong to all of us. Um, God, you're, you're, you're a good, good father. And we know that, that even when we give ourselves to something else. Even though you're jealous, you will draw us back. If we are yours, nothing can take us out of your snatch, God. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you can, no one can grab us out of your hands. <laughs> nothing can take us away. God, if you um, would continue to show us the false idols in our hearts this week, God, continue to strip us away, uh, cut away the things that need to be gone that are taking precedence over you, God, the things that you are jealous for in our lives, God, would you, would you bring those to light? Would your spirit reveal those to us? And would we submit to your spirit in removing and fleeing from those things, running from those things? Because we don't want to participate in two worlds. We want to participate only in your kingdom. We don't want to root for two teams. We want to root for one, God. Lord, I pray that you would give us um, 
the wisdom to do so. God, if there is someone here today that has not aligned themselves to you, not submitted their lives to you, God, I pray that you'd wreak havoc on their hearts. I pray that you'd show them that there's nothing in this world that will bring about the satisfaction that they are longing for, but only you can do that, Lord. God, if they're sitting here and feeling like, maybe some of the believers are feeling like their sins are too much, God, remind them that you drank every last drop. You didn't forget one single ounce of it. There is forgiveness of all sins for those in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, for the people that are here that are experiencing condemnation, would you show them the freedom they can have from that in you? And Lord, for your, for your children in here that continue to, to look to other things in this world, God, would you just, would you just create a sour taste in our hearts and our, and our mouths and our minds for those things that aren't of you? Let us, just, let us just see less and less value in those things, less, less value in our reputation, less value in, in our homes, less value in our families, less value in our marriages in a way that would bring honor and glory to you, God. Let us see less value so that you can take your rightful spot on the throne of our lives. And so God, as we come together to sing, as we come together to, to commune with you, God, as we come together to offer ourselves to you, God, I pray that you be glorified immensely and that no one's name is remembered except for yours alone. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.